Welcome to the Burnout Recovery Podcast, a guiding resource dedicated to healthcare professionals on their journey to overcoming burnout. Spearheaded by Dr. Joe Braid, a certified professional coach and rehabilitation physician. This podcast offers practical strategies through expert interviews and personal resilience stories, providing invaluable tools for navigating professional challenges while prioritizing well-being. Regardless of your role in healthcare, this podcast acknowledges the toll of your work on your overall health and is committed to supporting your recovery from burnout and fostering a fulfilling, sustainable career. So, if you're ready to begin a transformative journey, join us for each new episode. Together, we'll navigate challenges, celebrate successes, and build a supportive community of healthcare professionals. Welcome to the Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today, I am sharing with you a podcast episode where I was the guest for Health Ed, which is a learning platform for health professionals, uh, lots of seminars, articles, webinars, and so forth. So I was interviewed by Dr. David Lim, and it was a real gem of an interview. So I wanted to share that with you today. I'll go through uh, lots of the tools I talk about when a healthcare professional is looking to recover from burnout, how we can assess burnout why asking for help is so essential, overcoming doubts that you might have, and the benefits of group coaching as well. Did you know I'm starting group coaching at the start of September? So the Empowered Lab is the space that you want to inquire about. Check out my website. Uh, You can book in for a free short session with me to discuss what you'd be looking to get out of the group. If you're interested, then let's chat. I'll tell you more about it. That's the brief intro that I'm going to give you today. Enjoy this episode with Dr. David Lim from Health Ed. Tell us about yourself. Thank you, David. Lovely to be on the podcast today. I am a brain injury rehabilitation physician living in Orange in the central west of New South Wales. I work down the road in Bathurst in the health service there. I also have my own business as a coach for doctors specializing in burnout recovery. I've got my own lived experience through burnout as a clinician and have upskilled in professional coaching also. I am a lucky participant in the inaugural Australian Clinical Entrepreneur Program as well, which has helped me upskill in business development and network through entrepreneurs in health entrepreneurs in Australia. So it's great to be here today. It's an area I'm very passionate about and look forward to sharing some of my wisdom, some evidence-based facts around burnout and resources for your listeners today. This is the Clinical Takeaway Podcast from Health Ed, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Well, Joe, this is such an important topic for our listeners, because I think just hearing your intro uh, about your personal experiences, it's all right for me to declare to my listeners, too, that um, I had been through burnout, if not, was teetering on the brink of it. So I ask a simple question, Joe, uh, why is it so important to talk to our GP listeners about burnout? So I think there's a few factors at play here. Burnout is incredibly common. Uh, It's common in professions such as general practitioners, other healthcare providers, other professionals, and it's common in caregivers. And many of us, even in our healthcare role, we also have caregiving duties outside of work, which 
can contribute towards that burnout picture. I also think it's important because in medical school, we don't actually get taught what burnout is and maybe in specialty training also. So I like to inform my audiences of the features of burnout, some more common some more commonly known and some less commonly known as well, so that you're upskilled in what you might notice in yourself, a colleague or a patient. Well, would you like to start there? Because it sounds like a very important place to begin. Yes. So burnout was identified back in about 1975 and the three factors that were noticed then only in workers, this was not outside of work, were emotional exhaustion, cynicism about the role, about the workplace, and reduced productivity in an individual who previously would have had a lot of output. The two additional features that we know through more recent research are cognitive dysfunction, so your prefrontal cortex not working generally as well as it has been before, and insularity which is where we withdraw from the team that we might have been working with. And that can also relate to our personal relationships we might have as well. Those five factors. This requires a little bit of insight to know that we're actually there. Uh, If we lack the insight, are these visible to people outside us? Great question. So, I think with questions, you know, to grow awareness of either the individual asking the questions and quite likely to invite awareness in the individual potentially in burnout, you'll be able to pick some of these out. How do you feel when you get out of bed? What's your approach towards the workplace? Do you feel you're doing as much as you used to do? I think those would be quite easy to tease out what's going on. And I think we might get into this also, but I I do talk with medics about the difference between burnout and depression with burnout being more workplace or more caregiving role specific rather than uh, apathy, rather than depression being a more pervasive kind of apathy across lots of different areas of your life, if not all. So I think in your questioning there, you need to be specific about where do you notice you're cynical? Where do you feel you're less productive than before? Um, I think that would be a differentiating point for burnout. At what stage do you think we need to sort of sometimes just stop, pause and reflect? Anytime. I don't think there's a wrong time to do that. I think the nature of the work that we do means that that isn't necessarily scheduled in. I mean, as CPD comes along, we are encouraged to be more reflective then, but that might be when we're filling out our CPD at whatever point through the year. I think that opportunity to have a mentor, to have a supervisor, to have a coach, a therapist, somebody that you talk to, and also just even with the quiet of yourself and not needing an extra person to be prepared to engage with you, I think growing that self-awareness of how do I feel in myself today? What is going on? Is this different to how it was a month ago? I, I think there's a lot of value in understanding ourselves better and mindset management, sort of how we know ourselves, I think is an early part of awareness around the topic, but also prevention. You know, you you start seeing what's different compared to the months before, and then it's time to do something. An analogy for burnout is a thousand paper cuts. Mm -hmm. So imagine the first paper cut, oof, that's a bit sore. It heals up, carry on, keep going. By the time you've had a thousand, 
it's probably blood everywhere. It's pretty messy and it's not looking great anymore. So it comes on insidiously. It's not an overnight thing that happens. Now, what sorts of things can put a person at higher risk of burnout? So I'd say there's three main areas to look at with this. And we might start with the workplace first. You might be aware there's been recent psychosocial risk factor legislation came in in April this year. And a lot of these are highlighted here in the workplace risk factors. Having little or no control over your work, having lack of rec recognition um, in the workplace, overly demanding job expectations. So that can also come from within, and we might get onto that in a little bit. Finding your work very monotonous or unchallenging or having a chaotic or high pressure environment. So those are the workplace ones. Let's think about the lifestyle as well. Essentially working too much, not factoring in that time for relaxing or socializing. We're all humans in this healthcare business and connection is really important for all of us. Too many responsibilities. This is where that caregiving role outside of work might be high for you as well without enough help, not enough sleep and a sort of lack of close or supportive relationships. And thirdly, the personality sort of tendencies. Okay. So I talk very much about the perfectionistic traits that can carry us really far in medicine. It can be a real benefit for a while until it isn't. <laughs> a need to be in control of everything. There can be so much that's outside of our control, unfortunately, in medicine, but we still want to be in control of that and having that very high achieving nature type A personality. Again, it can get us through from like middle school, high school, all the way through, but sometimes it just does catch up with us. Now, was there a third one? There was a workplace, yep. lifestyle. And, and personality, yes. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's just so clean when you put it like that. And okay. I just wonder whether we should pause, you know, all the listeners should pause and just take a little checklist and take out how many of those relate yeah. to ourselves. Because um, as you describe, as doctors, we are, obviously very vulnerable to those personal issues you speak of. Absolutely. That's right, David. Yeah. So I, I have another question here for you, which is you, you did mention that, uh, you know, that it's a death by a thousand cuts, a paper cuts, if you like. When do we really say, look, I have reflected, I, I think I'm in some sort of trouble. Mm. When would I say, I'm going to give myself a chance to get out of this mm. and not to, or when will I say, look, I can't do this, I need help? So I'm hearing you've got two parts to that question. Can you do some of this alone or, you know, how's that executive function going in strategically thinking, well, what do I start to change and see if it works? Yeah, a good question. I guess with awareness and without being in uh, too deep a level of burnout or pre-burnout You've got more maybe autonomy, you've got more enthusiasm, you've got more energy to be getting out of the situation that you're in. I think asking for help is still quite hard and quite stigmatized in healthcare amongst other professions as well. And that's a big part of the work that I'm doing as well, hoping, wishing, inviting people to be more ready to put up their hand and say, actually, yes, I do need help. 
Yeah, I offer a free burnout assessment tool that's validated, came out of Belgium, and that has 12 workplace-related questions that people can ask, and they'll get an outcome of whether they're at no or low, no, or high risk of burnout from there. So it's only a risk of, we can't really diagnose it, but we can put, we can estimate what the risk is and then what to do from there. So this is a bit like cardiovascular disease in the sense that we've got calculators that measures your risk of, but the answer to the question, do you have heart disease now? So that's helpful to a degree. This tool is helpful to a degree because now, yes, I am at high risk. The next question is, am I burning out, have burnout? If so, how serious is it? How do you get a handle of this? Mm That's a great question. I guess when we put it in that cardiovascular disease analogy, there's significantly different outcomes that could be happening depending on if we're pre-AMI, we're having an AMI, or we're secondary cardiovascular prevention, right? So I think we've got some different treatment models that we would have with that. I would say what I know, what I've experienced with um, working with clients and keeping myself out of burnout as well, I would say I've got pretty foundational strategies that I would use at pre, during, or after burnout. I mean, after burnout might be a bit bit trickier or a bit longer, more slow stream work to bring somebody out of there. I would say it's also very individual, you know, very individual. So, yeah, I haven't got different strategies for those three different phrases for you. I think the same ones work. I'm going to come back to a difficult question here because you're clearly at the cold face and you're really saying, look, I'm here, I'm ready to talk to you and I'm inviting you to talk to me. But you've already said that it's not easy for healthcare professionals, particularly doctors, to to recognise they're in trouble and that to put their hand up and then to seek help. So can you speak to some of our listeners who may be at the point of wanting to look for help but not yet? Yeah, so... I wonder I wonder why they're not yet ready to. I mean, that might be stigma, that might be it's not common in their culture, in their workplace. I would encourage them to, I guess, find a trusted colleague, a trusted friend. Hopefully they've got their own GP, somebody that they can just start dialoguing about this with. You know, there are anonymous numbers we can call like 13 Health, Lifeline, etc., Men's Line and so forth that people can call. And I think there becomes a trigger point at which people can no longer go on on their own and want to do something about this. These are the people that will try and fix so much on their own. In medicine, we are problem solvers. We find the solutions to things. And of course, why wouldn't we do that to our own selves as well with what's going on for us? I find clients come to me when they really are at rock bottom and they find their schedule gets like incredibly, incredibly busy and that boundary taking of healthy boundaries to say, actually, no, I am going to have a pause there or no patient in that spot there. Once they take the time to go, I've just got to stop and I've got to ask for help myself, then things start to change for them. So yeah. I hope that gives some different strategies. I was just speaking to somebody you know well and or if you really sense you're at rock bottom and you've tried many things before, then I think that's your alarm bell. It's time to start asking for help. Just before that, there might come a time, Joe, when a particular doctor may feel some sort of a sense of failure. 
Are we not doing our jobs well enough? We know we've made some poor decisions. We know we had probably engaged in some sort of relational conflict, not well, either with patients or colleagues. But it's difficult to disclose this to a friend or trusted source because it, it really is actually having to stare at this possibility of self-failure, and it's not a good thing to look at. How would you encourage people feeling like this, again, to seek help? Who do they speak to? Because to speak to, inverted commas, trusted friends may impact how that friend looks at us again in the future. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, I I would then suggest from then, if you really do want to keep this private from those you know, then you need to seek uh, a more anonymous person that you can speak to that will maintain confidentiality. So I generally don't know the healthcare practitioners that I uh, work with as a coach, um, a psychologist as well, is also has that ethics code of maintaining confidentiality for you there. And I would hope that you can feel psychologically safe in another area like this to disclose that um, issue of failure, which again, it doesn't sit well with the medical mindset. It's not what we like at all. Mm. Okay. So we're going to come to a few questions here. Um, but I, I see a question about measuring burnout. Is there such a thing as measuring burnt out? Quickly addressing some ways to reduce the risk of burnout. And then maybe just asking you to tell us about your experiences. So we start with the measuring, if it's possible, and what's the utility of that? And the second is some of the ways by which we can address burnout. Yeah. So I think I'd refer back to, again, the burnout assessment tool that I, me I mentioned before. This one, I invite uh, my audience to check in on a quarterly basis and see what's changing. It's quick, it's easy, it's 12 questions. There's a longer version as well, but I'm trying to invite people to, I guess, invest some time, but not lots of time in looking at this. So I think a quarterly measure of, of how you're going is not a bad idea. Some ways to um, address or reduce the risk of burnout. So I, again, usually go through four different evidence-based tools that we can use to reduce your risk of burnout. So your audience may well be aware of mindfulness and meditation. Those are both evidence-based. One of the questions that I ask my audience about is what is meaningful for you? Research by Dr. Tate Shanafelt from the Mayo Clinic uh, identified a number of years ago that doctors who have less than 20% of meaningful work per week have an increase at greater than 50% risk of burnout. So you're looking to make sure that one in five days or 20% of your time is doing meaningful tasks. And that is individual to you. So what is meaningful to you? I've had audiences say, you know, delivering babies, doing lines, delivering news to a family, um, something to do with the colleagues as well. So think about what's meaningful for you. And that could be part of your mindfulness part. Meditation has also got evidence to help there. Um, exercise, it's so beneficial in so many different ways. And in the individual at risk of burnout, I don't think it needs to be really hard exercise. I think some fresh air, some walking, maybe with a friend at the same time. And then the fourth part, so coaching for physicians is published in the JAMA, a six-month program as an RCT. 
showed that for female resident physicians, so that's registrar level in Australia, over six months, those who did have the opportunity for a weekly group coaching call had reduced emotional exhaustion, improved self-compassion and reduced imposter syndrome at the end of six months compared to the control group who didn't get any coaching at all. And the coaching is similar to the sorts of coaching you're offering. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let me just have a look at it. It's mindfulness, meditation, exercise and coaching. You got it. Yes. Fantastic. Joe, it appears to me that because you did say that as doctors, we like to solve problems and give ourselves solutions. Yes. So we obviously many will, and I can imagine things like melatonin, things like alcohol, uh, are, are possible tools that we can use, maybe even benzodiazepines or whatever, or antidepressants. What would you like to comment on or, or, or speak about these sorts of self-management? I generally group those in tools more like Netflixing, social media scrolling, yeah, alcohol, illicit drugs um, as sources of quick dopamine hits. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if the benzos really help with that, but they probably just numb out some of the uncomfortable feelings, which is also what people are generally seeking to do when they binge watch, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so we're looking for a quick dopamine hit by a semi-reliable source as opposed to, I guess, kind of sitting with it, finding a different kind of self-care that is more sustainable, actually health-promoting rather than health-limiting, I would say. Things like the mindfulness, the exercise, the mo uh, the movement, the connecting with somebody else as well. So, I, yeah, it, it's not surprising when people have got access to medications, alcohol, things like that, that might be an easier option where nobody else needs to, to know what's going on with those. Getting to some personal issues now, because you, you, you know you did declare uh, an experience with it, and it is it does take courage and guts to publicly say that because there still is a stigma. So t tell us about your personal journey and how you actually overcame the stigma as well. So my third son was born in 2016, and at about like a few months later, I decided I wanted to upskill in lifestyle medicine. Okay, so extra study to do. I am a rehab physician. I don't have the general knowledge base like a general practitioner would to even add on lifestyle medicine on top of that. And this was me pre-coaching, still got my type A personality, perfectionist tendencies. And there was not really one main college to do the lifestyle medicine training with. So Canadian versions, Australian versions, American versions. And I went through four different training programs in the space of about two or three years. And now I can look back and see the features of burnout that were emerging or the contributors towards it. So I'd, I'd sort of study in the evening, ask my husband, who's also medical, to, you know, allow me to be free between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. So I'd be stacking that on top of mother, generally mothering the kids in the day. I would finish a program and then I'd never celebrate. I'd just go, what's the next one to do? Come on, what's the next one? So strong in, inner critic within me. I was definitely suffering from some emotional exhaustion. I built my clinic up. I engaged a health coach and we were seemed to be going quite well with the business. And then the pandemic came, but we could move to virtual. So that seemed to work. 
Then my mum was diagnosed with a mediastinal lymphoma in start of 2021. So we were still in lockdown time. Mum's in Cambridge in the UK and she kept on being admitted to hospital with a chest infection. It just wasn't shifting. There was no real community help available at that time. They were so short of stuff. So I had to have a little uh, chat with DFAT to get out of the country to go and see mum because that was how things were back then. I went over, rehabbed mum for four weeks. She was still having chemo, but she really turned around at the time I was there. And then what did I have to do? Two weeks of hotel quarantine because that's what we were in then. And you talked at the beginning about that moment to pause, reflect, reassess. And that was my time. And I wish that for people as well, that they allocate themselves like two nights in a hotel, whatever it takes, some time to think about what is going on? What are your biggest stressors in life? How are you managing it? How is it sustainable for you? And it was around that time that I'd started having some coaching and I really realized I could bring my workplace issues into this um, coaching, this group coaching and some individual coaching. I made the decision to have an exit strategy for my clinic and I shut it down at the end of that year while I was while I had upskilled in coaching and opened my coaching practice by October of that year. So I couldn't have predicted that a year before. I didn't see that coming, but I think just having that pause, I was very focused on mum in the UK, but the pause in hotel quarantine, I don't know if you went in hotel quarantine, it was something else. And there was definitely time to think in there. And I, I made my decision then. Wow, what a story. But you know, you just made it very clear to me the difference between taking time out, be it mindfulness or a walk in a park, versus many days of deep reflection, because one is more like helping you tread water for a little bit, and the other is allowing to really examine where you're at. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. For those of us who think we take a little bit of time out here and there, measured in hours at most a day, yes, we are probably only just treading water, aren't we? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. How much deeper reflection or skimming the surface, can you really unpack with that? And, you know, to even look at what does it feel like if you say, I'm going to take this Friday afternoon off? Like, what's the natural feeling that a GP might experience with that? I've got a question here because okay. it's a difficult one, because yeah. you must be a very courageous person to be able to look at an exit strategy. I mean, this is something you've been doing for a while now. Yes. You know, people look at the achievements, they they may attach themselves to it for various reasons. And now you're going to give it up to start something else new. Yeah. How did it feel? How did you get there? And how does it feel to to be there and then to make that decision? And how did you feel after it? Okay. Yeah, great question. I mean, it felt so hard to give myself permission at first to even really contemplate it and very invested in my medical career through the years. And I was a little unsure of myself, actually, at first to sort of back myself that I could do this. Exactly as you're saying, we thrive on external validation in our medical careers. And I often talk about how is your inner, inner validation. And I think that flame was just starting to grow for me as I was having some coaching, which is almost like this this space in a with a mirror where you can see the whole way around you as opposed to just seeing what you're looking at in the mirror. And um, I just 
I guess I was feeling, yeah, I felt at first it was slightly, it was impossible. It wasn't something I could do. And then I realized there wasn't going to be anybody else that would ever say to me, but you can close it down or you can stop that if you want to, Joe. You're not betrothed to it. It's not a wedding or it's not a marriage that you're talking about here. It is your, it's your life. And that was only, yeah, only about two years ago, but yeah, sort of early forties. And if I wanted to make a difference in, how the next 10 or 20 years was going to be, I felt, as you, as you're asking, I felt more grounded. I felt more certain. And, um, any hint of guilt that I might have had earlier on had passed through with the permission to draw a line, the permission to say no. It was a boundary that really mattered for my emotional health and well being. And when I knew that that was why and why I was making that decision, the heaviness changed. Yeah, I, I guess the reason why we need someone like you as a coach is, is this whole concept of finding, recognizing and believing in your inner validation and away from the noise of the external. I mean, that's the hard part, isn't it? It is. It is. It takes practice. Um, a tool that I often give my clients to do is to list achievements that they notice in themselves. Okay. So what, what are you going to acknowledge yourself for? Because this ties in with the risk of having burnout, as I mentioned before, lack of recognition in the workplace. But hey, instead of waiting on somebody else to acknowledge you or recognize you, much as it's a great culture to have in your workplace, if you can start growing your list of achievements that you recognize in yourself, I challenge any of your listeners to get up to 100 achievements listed for themselves and then see how they feel because your inner validation will have grown by the time you've listed 100. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's set a challenge for me. <laughs> okay. Well, you clearly changing what you're doing certainly fixed uh, the problem. Thus, changing jobs actually fix burnout. Yeah, this is such a good question because I actually do not believe that quitting is the answer now. But that's not what I knew two years ago. And that is what I did. And I would not be alone in doing that as a result of burnout. I know plenty of doctors that have done that. Some have completely left the profession. Got to be mindful that it's the same human brain that's looking to turn up at a different work environment. And if it was our work environment that was the sole cause of burnout, then we'd all have burnout. There'd be sort of a 100% burnout rate, but it's not. It's that combination of that human brain plus the workplace environment. Maybe you'll be less likely to get burnout in a different environment, but that's why I encourage people to be open to um, like addressing how they manage their mind and seeing how they can upskill in their emotional health and well-being as a tool to take them anywhere that they want to go. Absolutely important. Just one more thought. You're speaking about yourself as a person working at the workplace. Let's just imagine that you are caring for others in the workplace. So how can you make a workplace more helpful to people or reduce the risk of burnout or help to address burnout in people working in the work environment? Great question. So I actually do some group coaching for the registrars in my local emergency department. I'll go in, I'll do a four-hour session with them. They have a lot of nights, so it's not always the same people. 
But then I ask them what's important to, I, I mean, I invite them to share what's important to them. And they want to grow more of a culture of acknowledgement. Because mm -hmm. I guess I've shared with them what are some of the risk factors. And then they take that on board and go, oh, actually, well, we'd like to be showing up and acknowledging each other more. I think really having those hot and cold debriefs, particularly in that kind of zone of uh, ED, which some of your listeners may w well be um, GP like rural generalists who are upskilled in ED as well, yeah. I mean, I think it can work across any of our specialties that we've got. But having that opportunity to talk about it, and I like this evaluation tool, what went well, what didn't go well, and what would I do differently? It's like a little audit. You can do it on yourself. You could do it in the team as well. It's not finger pointing. It's evaluation. It's looking at what we've done together and all together growing from there. What else in the workplace? I think I think knowing each other better gives us a highlight of what's going on in somebody else's life as well. Okay. So I had eight registrars and, you know, we sort of went around the room, share what you feel comfortable sharing, setting up, setting it up as a confidential space. They learned things about each other that I don't think they'd talked about so far. Yeah. I mean, this was Feb. They would have started in Jan, January. But um just to get to know each other and like, oh, okay, you've had a significant health condition before. I had no idea you're on the other side of that. And looking out uh, for each other as the real humans in healthcare that we are. So looking at culture, acknowledgement, you know, awareness of what other people are going through. It's just three strategies to start off with, David. I think there'd be a lot more. It, it sounds fabulous. I think it just to me speaks of one word. It's connection. Mm, yes, yes. We, we do feel we live in silos, Joe, sometimes. Yes, so and true. Connection and socialization makes us realize we are living in a social network. Yes. Not alone. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Right. Now, let's look at the resources, some online. And mm. I particularly like to talk about coaches. What can a coach do for us? Sure. How I have experienced and how I provide coaching as well is holding space. So holding that safe space where you feel comfortable in talking about what you do want to talk about. And you can also comfortably have a boundary and say, I don't actually want to talk about that area there. As a coach, I invite my clients to know more about themselves through very open-ended questions. So, so many different questions. There's a lot of why. Why do you think why do you think you don't want to say no to that request of X, Y, Z at work? Why are you worried about their opinion? Why do you feel more worthwhile when you do X, Y, Z at work? And then I also ask, how worthwhile or how worthy is a baby when it's born? Wow. That's <laughs> an inherent value here, aren't you? Yeah. So that's just a handful. So then the client has all the knowledge within them. The client has the answers to whatever they're bringing to the coaching session. When I actually do burnout recovery coaching, it's fairly tailored. Um, so I have specific topics that I go through. Yeah, pretty open-ended questions. So the client gets to know themselves better. I also really like my clients to grow their toolkit of self-coaching tools. So there's no dependency in the relationship. When they're ready, they can leave and they've got a toolkit to use ongoing with themselves. Yeah, sure. I can actually imagine that you have a very strong role in prophylaxis. If I, yes, I hope so. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we get out of this and we stay out of this. Yeah. Mm. Sure. I guess I would like you to just reflect on 
what we've spoken about, and maybe just summarize the key messages for our listeners. I guess, you know, burnout is common. We've gone through the main five features uh, that are commonly seen in people with burnout, um, exhaustion, cynicism, reduced productivity, uh, cognitive dysfunction, and insularity. We can measure burnout, so that's the risk that somebody is at for having burnout, and that's a tool that be, can be reused time and time again. There are different factors to consider when we're looking at triggers or risk factors for burnout in both the workplace, the lifestyle, and the personality trait. We've talked about briefly how burnout's different to depression, and I think that's really important for your clinicians who um, have great diagnostic skills and great to have that upskilling of how would burnout present differently to a patient with depression. Burnout being common, about um, 63% of physicians surveyed in 2021 uh, showed signs of burnout common in other, other healthcare professions as well. Nursing, it's pretty high too. And then plucking the individual out of one environment and into another one, I don't think necessarily is a, a, a firm solution to burnout. It may well help, but I really think there's um, additional uh, emotional well-being work to focus on there. Sure. I have really enjoyed speaking with you. And for our listeners, uh, we will be providing some resource or online tools that you can access. Really enjoyed speaking with you, Joe. Thank you so much, David. That was a really great interview. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Burnout Recovery Podcast. If there's someone in your world who would also benefit from this, please share it with them. Remember, you're not alone and there is hope for a brighter, more fulfilling future. Let's continue this journey together one episode at a time. For more resources, including how to move from dread to delight, head to drjoebraid.com.